to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, it's on page 586 of the Black Bibles that are provided. Uh, if you choose to use one of those, 500, 584, excuse me, I think I misspoke there. 584 of the Black Bibles that are provided. Acts chapter 15, we're going to read the passage a little bit at a time this morning. Um, our text will uh, be our, our guide for our outline as well this morning. And so you can just follow right along in your copy of the scriptures. In previous weeks, we have seen how God is doing a work in the early church. And that the gospel that started in Jerusalem, the good news about Jesus Christ, is now sounding forth all throughout the world. You remember the outline that took place, uh, that, was, that was given to us all the way in the early, the first chapter of Acts, Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then uttermost parts of the earth. And so that is the outline that we see being followed as the gospel of Jesus Christ makes its way uh, throughout the known world at the time. We see that, that, that the first missionary journey has just wrapped up. We wrapped that up last week. Now, I will tell you, if you're paying very, very close attention, or if you take notes in your Bible, uh, you may have noticed that we skipped a passage. Did anybody notice that? That we skipped um, the last part of chapter 13. And the reason we did that, there is no spiritual or theological reason for that. It's because that is going to make a great Resurrection Day text. And so we're actually going to come back to that, backtrack a little bit uh, on, on uh, Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. And uh, so we haven't forgotten about it, but that sermon that Paul preaches there uh, will be good for our consideration on Resurrection Sunday. But we continue forward. We've just wrapped up the first missionary journey. Uh, Pastor Dan went through that with us in chapter 14, and we covered a lot of miles kind of literally and figuratively, uh, there in Acts 14. Now, Acts 15, if you're reading through the book, may seem like an odd break after the first missionary journey. There is this trajectory, there is this plot that is moving forward in the book of Acts, and all of a sudden, everything kind of stops for this theological consideration that takes place in the, first, uh, in the, the bulk of Acts 15. And, but it's a very important one, and it's strategic in the, in the propagation of the gospel going throughout the known world, because now we are seeing in large numbers Gentiles embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Up until this point, it's been kind of seeds of it taking place, but as of the first missionary journey, the gospel is really going to the Gentiles for the first time in a, in a large way. And so that prompts a very serious theological question. Sometimes you get the impression from people that theology and practical service, evangelism, are, are over and against each other. That, that we shouldn't spend time discussing theological issues. Shouldn't we be out evangelizing the world? I mean, why are we spending so much time uh, discussing and thinking about serious theological issues? Why are we debating these things when really what Christ has called us to do is to reach the world? Actually, that is not a dichotomy that the Scripture lays out. That's actually a false dichotomy. Theology matters and evangelism matters. They are not 
mutually exclusive. And what we see here is, is as the gospel goes forward, as evangelism is taking place, some very important questions come up. And of course, this one is a question that goes right to the very heart of the gospel. And so this morning, we consider Acts 15. We'll be looking all the way down through verse 35, piece by piece. And we learn from it that we are to remain true to the gospel of grace. We learn from this occasion in the early church that we should remain true to the gospel of grace. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word that teaches us. We pray even now as churches are gathering uh, throughout this country, uh, throughout the world, we pray the strength and help of your spirit even as many are not able to meet physically that you would still work in and through our limited means of ministering to one another. This morning, Lord, as we consider this passage of Scripture, we pray your help upon us, and we pray that you would do a work through your Word and through your Spirit. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. If you have been around gospel preaching for any length of time, you you have heard it over and over and over again, that we are saved by, you tell me, by grace through in Christ. There we go, right? And then, and then a lot of times we will add kind of that, that Reformation mantra, right? We are saved by grace alone, right? Or excuse me, by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. When I break it up, I get off, off sync, right? By, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. That is very important to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know that it's repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know the verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We see it in numerous places in Scripture. We see it in 2 Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. What is the gospel? He saved us and called us with His holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed to the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. The gospel is inherently tied to grace. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Therefore, if there is any merit, if there is anything that we do to deserve it by its definition, by its essence, it is no longer grace. This is actually the case that Paul lays out in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He he continues to make this argument, and and he draws it together this way in verse 28 of Romans 3. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified. He is made right with God by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Paul makes the case clear that grace and works are mutually exclusive. 
If you, if you add a works requirement to grace, it is no longer grace. It is no longer unmerited favor. In Galatians 3, Paul actually writes an entire treatise in the book of Galatians to combat the heresy known as Judaism. Galatians 3, 10 and 11, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Right. So, so the law is not a smorgasbord right? that you can take just enough of to be justified. Paul makes the point that like if you violate, like James makes the same point, right? If you violate part of the law, you violated the totality of the law. If you're going to be saved by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. It is clear. No one can be justified by the law. The just the justified, the ones who are made just before God through Jesus Christ, live by faith. Now, what is the historical context in which Paul writes these words in Galatians? It is Acts 15. Now, Bible scholars love to debate. Did Paul write Galatians just before the Jerusalem Council or just after the Jerusalem Council? And they love to discuss why they think it's just... The, what, it is, what is clear to us is that right around the same time that these events are occurring in Acts 15 is when Paul writes the book of Galatians. So if you want to see the theological essay that was written as a commentary on the history of Acts 15 or what's happening in this passage, you would want to read the book of Galatians because that's exactly what it is written to do. It is designed to combat the, the, the false teaching that is being addressed here in Acts 15. And so now we come to Acts 15, which teaches us, remain true to the gospel of grace. Remain true to the gospel of grace. Well, how do we do that? How are we instructed by this passage to remain true to the gospel of grace? Well, we first of all remain true to the gospel of grace by refusing to add works. We've already referred to it. And the reason that, that we have, we've laid down the foundation is because I think it's just review for us. It's, it's something that we know to be true. Well, how did the early church wrestle through this question? Of what role does the law play in the Christian life? This is a very important question because you'll remember that the first believers were themselves Jewish. And now the gospel is going forward to all the ends of the earth. Gentiles are accepting the gospel, and so it brings the question of adding works to the gospel. So you and I are to remain true. We are to remain true. That, that, that We are challenged by this passage to remain true to the gospel by refusing to add works, because if we add works to grace, it distorts the gospel. It, it, it makes the gospel something that is twisted, that is untrue. So we consider verse 1. Here's the events that are happening. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. So what seems to be happening is there are people coming from Jerusalem down to Antioch. Right? Remember, this is the mission center. 
This is where we are seeing a church of many, many Gentiles. This is where we are seeing missionaries sent out. And so some men came down and taught the brethren, what? Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, now I want you to key in on a few things that are happening here. Right, we, are, we are doing a series on covenants, right? And remember, every covenant is accompanied by a... By a sign, right? We covered the Noahic Covenant a few, few uh, weeks ago. We have yet to get to the Mosaic Covenant, but, but guess what the sign of the covenant is? Hmm? Circumcision, right? And so when they say you must be circumcised, that is a shorthand way of saying you have submitted to the law. You have, you have gone under the covenant of, of Moses. Right? Otherwise, what purpose would there be to circumcision? It was, it was a submission to the law, the law of Moses. And so, so essentially what the Judaizers taught, this is a group known as the Judaizers. They were a sect that emerged in the early church. And in fact, this sect continued to grow much more virulent in the early years of the church. This was a, a problem, a major problem for Paul and the other apostles, that these Judaizers would follow them around and mislead people. And they would teach this very thing. Unless you're circumcised, unless you submit to the law, unless you are under the custom of Moses, what does verse 1 say? You, you, what? End of verse 1. Unless you are circumcised, you what? You cannot be saved, right? So make no mistake about what is happening here. They are adding a work to the grace of Christ. They're saying, yes, grace, right? They, they, would not outward, uh, they would not out and out deny salvation by grace, but they're saying grace plus. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't stand for this. Because they know that grace plus is not grace. So here are the Judaizers that are teaching. Now, we're going to use the word legalism from time to time this morning. And you hear the word legalism thrown around. Okay? Let me just kind of help to clarify the fact that is when, when we use the term legalism, sometimes there's different shades of meaning to how people use the term legalism. Okay? Sometimes, when we talk about legalism, what we're referring to is essentially works-based salvation. That you must do X in order to be saved. That's a form of legalism. That there, there's a law code, whether it's Moses' law or it's some other external standard that mankind has developed, whether it's a certain uh, religious code, whether it's a dietary code, whatever it is, you must do X to be saved. That is one kind of variant of legalism. The second kind of variant of legalism is closely connected but it's really what Paul addresses more specifically in the book of Galatians, and that is you must do X to, to maintain salvation. Right? So, so Jesus kind of hit the reset button for you, 
And now you must do works to maintain the grace of God. And this really seems to be what Paul is addressing in Galatians, but still addresses it as a threat to the gospel. The third kind of variant of legalism is a bit more subtle. And it is one that I think Bible-believing, gospel-preaching people can sometimes be tempted towards. All right? We know, we acknowledge theologically that we cannot, we cannot curry God's favor. We cannot gain God's favor through our works. We know that we really don't have to maintain our salvation through a certain set of works. But we kind of, kind of slide in this notion that in order to maintain God's favor, in order to kind of keep God happy with me, I must keep a certain list of externals. Well, the fact is, God does not look upon us with favor because of our own goodness in the first place. And do you understand that every sin you've ever done and will ever do Jesus knew about when he saved you? And do you further understand that nothing that you do or do not do brings you in closer favor with God? God looks upon us with favor because of Jesus Christ. When we are made, when we are made new, when we are born again, when we are justified, we stand before God as righteous as we will ever be because we stand before him in Christ. And in fact, Paul actually uses this as an argument for our behavior. He says, this is who you are in Christ. Now go live like that, essentially. And so the argument is not that we should do whatever we want to do because we are justified but rather that we should strive to live a holy life because we stand before God justified in Christ. And so when we talk about legalism, there are these three kind of different shades. And I want you to understand that we can all be inclined to these in our hearts. That somehow I have done something to earn God's favor. And that is the temptation of our own pride that you and I should guard against. We should constantly watch our heart for that seed of thought, that temptation that says, well, God's more pleased with me because I do or I don't do. No, God is pleased with us because of Jesus Christ. Because he has taken upon himself our sin and given us his robes of righteousness. And if we stand before God, it is not because of what we have done but only by his grace. And I know this is a temptation because I want you to notice verse 5. Some of the sect of the Pharisees. Now, do you think of the Pharisees as people who are always opposed to Christ? Right? I mean, that's kind of how I think about them. I read all this stuff about Christ combating the Pharisees. But here's the interesting thing. Some of them came to faith. How do I know? Because verse 5 tells me, some of the sect of the Pharisees who, what's the next word? Who believed. Rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them. So, so what do I take from that? I take from that the fact that genuine believers can sometimes be tempted 
to distort the gospel. That, that true believers can sometimes fall, that they can sometimes be deluded into believing something about the gospel that isn't true. And that's what's happening here. So back up to verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, about this question. So there's this dispute taking place, and what they agree to do is to, to send emissaries, specifically Paul and Barnabas, to go to Jerusalem, the mother church, and discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts 15 in what is often, often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. It is the first church council in history. So it's appropriate now for us to take a moment and to talk about church councils. Okay? As confessing evangelicals, as Protestants, we strongly believe that church councils do not have revelatory authority. In other words, church councils do not determine doctrine. They do not determine truth. What determines truth? Well, the teachings of Jesus as recorded by the apostles. Now, this council is unique, isn't it? It's fact, it's unique in history. It will never happen again because this council consists of the apostles. I mean, the ones who learned themselves from Jesus. And so Ephesians 2 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The, the, the church is built on Christ as the cornerstone with the foundation being laid of Christ and the apostles. This is an example of that. So the appeal is to go back to Jerusalem to find out what the truth is. Councils, especially the subsequent councils, do not determine doctrine. They do not determine truth. What they do is they clarify truth and they explain truth in a way that is relevant to that age. So most of the church councils took place because there was some specific theological threat. There was some specific theological uh, sticking point that needed to be clarified. And sometimes you'll hear skeptics say, well, such and such council invented the doctrine of, right? That is an extremely pejorative and biased way of explaining church councils because that's not what is happening. In fact, that's not the purpose for which they gather. They gather together to clarify, to hone, to communicate well the truth that had been already revealed. Right, so church councils, although they are not authoritative, do hold an important role, especially in the first centuries of Christianity. And so I take from that a couple lessons, just kind of practical lessons. First of all, don't do theology in a vacuum. Don't, don't just, me and Jesus in my Bible attitude, right? Have you, you've heard it said before, he who defends himself has a fool for an attorney? <laughs> well, guess what? He who teaches himself has a fool for a teacher, right? Now, I don't mean by that that you have to have a formal degree to, look, to be learned in the scripture. In fact, there are many men throughout history that do not take formal training 
that, that were very knowledgeable in the scriptures, but what they did do was they submitted themselves to learning from the wisdom of others. You see, the value of not doing theology in a vacuum is that your ideas get knocked around. Like you throw out a crazy idea and another brother or sister in Christ says, well, but wait a minute. What about this teaching here? Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Whereas when you do theology in a, va in a vacuum, here's, here's what happens. Hey, I got this idea. Oh, that's good. And then it grows. And it grows. And pretty soon it's so entrenched in your belief system that, that nothing's going to assail it, even if it's wrong. So these men are humble enough to say, look, we could be wrong here. We may not have it all figured out. Let's go check with the authority, which is actually the second lesson that I see here in the way that they conducted themselves. Be sensitive to your spiritual authority. All right? Now, unchecked authority, unfettered authority is a dangerous thing. All right? And so you'll hear me often say, you know, don't believe me as a pastor. Search the scripture. But there is a wisdom in seeking the input of those who are studied, those who are learned, those who have, been, have made their, their livelihood in, in searching the scriptures, uh, saints who have been reading their Bibles for years and have tried to apply practical wisdom to, to life. It is very arrogant for us to think that we have all the answers. And so sometimes God brings into our lives those to whom we can look for counsel, for advice, for guidance. And it is unwise for us to ignore those sources of wisdom. Again, we're not talking about an, an unchecked, unfettered authority. What we're talking about is the wisdom to seek guidance from those who, who, from whom we should. All right, so here we are in verse 5. The sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of the Mo Moses. So there you see it wed together, right? The law of Moses is, uh, the circumcision is the sign of the covenant of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them. All right, so we begin Peter's speech in the presence of the council. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentiles, or by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts. So he builds this case that, that it is inaccurate to speak of the gospel in terms of having to come through the law of Moses. In fact, he says, um, let me tell you about the first Gentile conversion. Right? We've studied this. This is just a few chapters ago. He's referring back to the account of Cornelius. Right? He's saying, this is not the way God is working. It, it, is, it is a distortion of the gospel to add this legal requirement. What these Judaizers are doing is they're saying you can't come to Mount Calvary without going by Mount Sinai. You've got you to gotta go through the law. You've got to go through the covenant of Moses to get to salvation. And Peter's saying, no, no, I was there for the first Gentile conversion, 
God graced me to allow, uh, allow me to be part of the first Gentile conversion, and that's not the way it happened. This is not the gospel. And so what we see here is Peter further making a case to not add grace to works because doing so creates a barrier to the gospel. He goes on in verse 8. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither us which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Do you notice that phrase? Neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why? Because there's no such thing as partial keeping of the law, he says. That's a heavy burden. In fact, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't do it. Our fathers before us. I mean... This is Peter talking here, a a fastidious Jew, saying it was a burden that we couldn't bear. So why do you insist on putting that burden on our Gentile brethren? And so what he's saying here is that adding works not only distorts the gospel, it distances the lost. And I think we can still fall into this trap today. Um, Caleb, I've lost control, so you can punch up my next point there. It's not working for me. Um, I think we still have this temptation today because we sometimes give people the notion, right? You must clean up your life. You must look this way and act this way. and Then you come to Jesus. No, you come to Jesus just as you are. That does not mean that you're unrepentant. In fact, you come to Jesus just as you are so that he can change you and make you new. So, so saving faith transforms, make no mistake. But what we can do sometimes is we can get the cart before the horse. We can, we can act like, well, people must, must look a certain way and dress a certain way and act a certain way so that they are welcome in our midst, so that they can embrace the gospel. And that is the reversal of the pattern of the gospel. So Peter's saying, you actually, you actually run the risk of distancing people from the true gospel when you set up these barriers of law. And so Peter rejects this adding, uh, adding law to the gospel, adding works to the gospel, because it, it distances the lost. It further diminishes the work of God. Adding, adding works to grace violates the plan of God. You notice Peter said in verse 9, he made no difference between us and them because he purified their hearts by faith. God had already settled the issue by giving salvation to Cornelius on the basis of his faith alone. Cornelius was not circumcised, he was not a Pharisee, and yet God had purified his heart by faith. Now, by the way, little sidebar, little note about pneumatology. Pneumatology is the study of the spirit, right? Little footnote here. You'll notice that they consistently use the giving of the spirit as evidence of salvation. Right? He weds those two together. If it were the case that not all believers had the spirit, that argument would make no sense. Right? So this is another passage that points to the reality that all believers have the spirit. That's how he 
provides evidence that they are genuine believers. It's not primarily what the passage is about, but I thought that was, that was worth pointing out. So don't add grace to works because it violates the plan of God. God had settled this question. Now go down with me to verse 12. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. You remember that we've said before that signs and wonders, miracles, that as they were used in the early centuries of the church, were to verify the message that was being given. Right? Because the, the word was still being written at that time. The canon had not closed. And so these were evidences. So Paul and Barnabas say, okay, let's tell you about our first missionary journey and how God spread the gospel throughout the world uh, at our hands. Then James, verse 13, after they became silent, James answered. Now, James is seen as the first overseer, the first pastor of the Jerusalem church. And so he is probably presiding, it seems from the tenor of the text, that he is presiding over the Jerusalem council. He's kind of the host pastor, if you will. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and, and he has the final word. So all of the deliberations have taken place, the debate has taken place, James rises and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with his words, and, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Now, James is an exquisite Old Testament theologian, and he hearkens back in his mind to the prophet Amos. Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So what James is pointing out here is that God is not done with Israel. We actually got into this discussion a little bit in one of our, uh, in our uh, discipleship group this morning. It, it came up as a question and I kind of, uh, uh, rudely intruded on their discussion and, and added my two cents, right? This is actually one of those passages that, that in my mind gives us clarity that just because God is doing a work in the church during this age does not mean he's done with Israel. I firmly believe that the promises that are made to physical Israel are yet to be kept to physical Israel, that the church does not substitute for Israel. Now, you can be a good Christian and believe differently than I do. That's fine. When we get to heaven, you'll find out I was right, right? But but, but this is one of those little clues that James says, listen, don't misunderstand. God's not done with Israel, right? He hearkens back to Amos right in the context of the gospel going out to the Gentiles, right in the context of the birth, the early years of the church. I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up. This was an assurance that was given to the Jews, to the Jewish believers, that God's people are being added to, that, that, that the, the Jewish people are not out of the picture because God is doing a work in the church. And so one theologian refers to this as two concentric circles that make up the people of God, that, that at the very heart of God's work is, is the Jewish people, is Israel. But God is now bringing in from all nations throughout the earth another group that are his people. And this, this second circle is the church. In fact, they will in some way, in some ways enjoy the messianic blessings that have been made to Israel as an overflow. God will still keep his promises to Israel. 
Yet those promises that are made to Israel are not fully enjoyed. In fact, right now, we as the church are enjoying some of those same blessings that overflow to us as the people of God. So the logic is simple. The Jewish prophets have made it clear that he will still do this in the end, that he will still restore Israel. Isn't this the inauguration of the work that was promised by the prophets? That he will work throughout the world, that he will make a people for himself of the Gentiles. And he says in verse 18, known to God from eternity or all his works. Therefore, I judge, here's here's the pronouncement. Here's, here's what we should do. Here's the conclusion of the matter. I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from things strangled, and from blood. All right, so James says, conclusion is we are not going to trouble Gentiles with the law. But here's what they should do. Right? He gives some instructions that should be uh, propagated to Gentile believers, and he gives four of them. All of them, you'll notice, we'll, we'll talk through each one in a minute, all of them are related to paganism. All of them are related to idol worship. So watch them with me. The first thing that he says are for, now by the way, abstain is a present tense verb. It's the idea of constantly abstain. Uh, not just abstain one time, but but. A, a way of life, a practice. So what are these pagan practices that they should avoid? He, he gives them to us itemized. First is avoid things sacrificed to idols. Right? The temples of worship, um, and don't go to the temples of worship. Don't eat the, the meat from such temples. Paul's going to talk about this a lot in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Remember this? Right? And in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul makes the case in verse eight, er, in chapter eight, that it is unloving, and most people stop at the end of chapter eight. But I would dare say, if you continue to study, that he actually makes the case in verse ten that it is not only unloving, but it is also idolatrous to participate in the idolatrous practices. Right. So he's not saying in in chapter eight it's okay, just don't do it out of love. He's saying don't do it out of love. Oh, and by the way, it's not as innocent as you think it is, chapter 10. Now, you study that passage. You see if you think, if you read it the same way. That's how I read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Back to this text, uh, he says, avoid things sacrificed to idols. Don't, don't participate in idol sacrifice, right? There's a little restaurant there in the temple, in the pagan temple, down the street from you, not a place you want to eat. Number two, blood. Many of the ancient pagan worships, worship uh, rituals actually involved drinking blood. And if you go back, you'll find these, these pagan rituals. Uh, they, would, they would take body parts out of that which is being sacrificed, and they would, they would eat it raw. They would drink blood. Some of these grotesque practices were part of the pagan rituals. And so, so Peter, uh, excuse me, James is saying here, let's not, let's not as believers have anything to do with that. Uh, Number three, things strangled. Gentiles ate animals that had been strangled instead of ritually slaughtered like the Jews did. And then lastly, fornication. Now, this may seem like just a general 
um, proclamation, and it is. Fornication in general is forbidden by the New Testament writers consistently. But keep in mind that many, many pagan temples actually had staff prostitutes, both male and female, where they made sexual immorality part of the worship service, a part of the worship ritual. Okay? And so when he's, when he's saying these things, what he's saying is, okay, this is the way the pagans around you conduct themselves. You as believers should have no part in that. And so there are, these are elements that overlap. Yes, they do. They overlap with mo the Mosaic law. You should still be bound by these, but there's a, an additional reason that I think James is pointing out here. Not just simply to avoid paganism, but furthermore, James declares that Gentiles believers should abide by these things that are found in the law, but not for salvation, right? He just refuted that. He just clearly made the point that, that obtaining any kind of favor um, from God was not something that we do by works. Why does he say? Why does he say to keep these practices? Verse 21 actually tells us, right? Verse 21 explains, for, this is the reason, Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, there are Jewish communities throughout all the known world. And Gentile believers are not to do that which would offend their religious sensibilities. Might some of these things be allowed? Perhaps. But out of respect, out of honor, out of protection for others, don't do the things that will offend their religious sensibilities. So if I were living in a predominantly Muslim country, probably the best way to meet my neighbors is not to have a, a pig roast, right? We are to be sensitive to the sensibilities of those around us for the sake of the gospel. Um, there are things that we may be permitted to do, but we ought not to do. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. And so, so you know, just, just by way of illustration, right, we've got this, this coronavirus thing going on. And uh, authorities are saying, you know, no gatherings of over 250 more. Now, I don't know how much legal teeth there is in that. I, I'm not an attorney. I don't pretend to be. I don't even play one on TV. All right. So I don't know how much legal, you know. But let's just suppose for the sake of illustration, there's, there's not legally binding authority on that, that recommendation. But people still aren't going to do it. Why? Love for their neighbor. Right? Care for their neighbor. You may be able to do it, technically, but is it a good thing to do for the sake of your neighbors? All right? so, so, you know, concerts are being canceled. Um, large gatherings are being canceled. You know, you're getting emails saying, you know, this event's canceled, that event's canceled, right? And so there are things that perhaps we could do, but we ought not do, and specifically for the sake of the gospel, which really takes us to our last point, and that is that one of the means that we remain true to the gospel of grace is by actually restricting our freedom for the sake of others, by restricting our freedom 
bump up, hit that arrow twice for me, please. Um, remain true to the gospel by restricting our freedom for the sake of others. Um, this is really what James is appealing to. That for the sake of those in your community, for the Jewish people specifically in your community, there are things that you ought not do. You've, um, if you've been around my teaching very long, you have heard the little mantra that we, we, limit our limit, or we limit our liberty to multiply our ministry. That's not original with me. I'm sure I picked it up somewhere along the way. Right, we limit, and I do the little hand signs, right? We limit our liberty to multiply our ministry. And that's what James is appealing for us to do. Is to, to, yes, there may be things that we are permitted to do by Christian liberty, but, but limit those for the sake of multiplying ministry. This was a very important juncture in the history of the early church because it really goes to the, the root of the gospel, to the heart of the gospel. And as we said at the outset, we as Christians can sometimes be tempted to distort the gospel. Let's not think that, that having been saved by the grace of God somehow makes us impervious to misconstruing the gospel. And so legalism, as it is addressed here, and then the variant forms of legalism are something that we should be on the lookout for. Because each of us have legalistic hearts. We have hearts that are prideful and that are inclined to give ourselves credit for God's favor. So we must be accurate with the gospel. That we come to Jesus Christ offering Him nothing, just as I am without one plea, except Jesus' blood, and that shed for me. And then as we go through our Christian lives, let's, let's be aware that, that we ought not pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, boy God's, God's really happy with me. i got a lot of stars on my Sunday school chart. No, if we do anything good, it is only by His grace. We sang about it this morning. Not only are we saved by His grace, but we are then kept by His grace. The good that we do is because of the grace that is flowing through our lives. We are called upon to pursue holiness, to, to be surrendered to Him. But it is not for our own, uh, for our own uh, pride, for our own uh, credit that we do those things. And then lastly, I would just offer one final note. And this is kind of the ditch on the other side. James actually gives some very specific instructions here about what not to do for the sake of the gospel. So let's just be clear about the fact that pursuing holiness, setting standards, is not legalism. Not doing certain things and, and doing certain things is not tantamount to legalism. Legalism has to do with the heart. It has to do with why we do or don't do certain things. May we never give ourselves credit because we keep certain standards, because we keep a certain checklist, because we have the right rule book. May we be humble before God. Guard the gospel carefully and live by His grace each and every day. Remain true to the gospel of grace. Father, we thank